problems in their brains, people who had epilepsy, uh, schizophrenia, these kinds of, of uh, mental problems which, which they assume had to do with mal malfunctions in the brain. In doing experiments with such people, which involved boring holes in their skulls and sticking probes into their brain, you know, probing different parts of the human brain to find out what would happen if we touch this part or what would happen if we touch that part, that perhaps they may touch a part that would rectify uh, the problems that these people were facing. And they found, in the course of their experiments, that there was a particular part in the brain, that every time they probed it, the person who was being treated would experience these massive religious experiences, an awareness, of, a sense of God, the presence of God, this kind of thing, he would come out of these treatments with these feelings. As a result of that, there was, they did an article in the Scientific American, and it was published in uh, international newspapers that the scientists had found what they believed to be the God spot in the brain. They concluded that the human brain was, as they put it, hot-wired for belief in God. This confirms that belief in God, at least for for the scientists, etc., is something so basic in human existence that one needs to address the truth, the correctness of that belief. Especially when we consider that though the majority of people on earth do have a belief in God, when one goes from one society to another society, one finds a variety of different understandings of God. And as a result, we have a variety of different religions promoting these different understandings. However, in spite of the variety which is there, the concept of God, the concept of there being one supreme being over all including the half-gods or gods who represented some of the attributes of God, seems to indicate that belief in the one God was primary, and that in time that belief degenerated and became either a belief in intermediaries between God and man, or that some aspects of God's creation is giving the attributes of God, so God may be worshipped partially in the spirits of nature. At any rate, accepting that the belief in one God is fundamental, there does remain an aspect of that belief which defies human logic, reason, but yet has become the cornerstone 
of the faith of the vast majority of people. It is the belief that God became a man. It is a belief which is shared by both Hinduism and Christianity and the offshoots of Hinduism which deserves to be questioned, deserves to be reflected upon. Because what we find is that in Islam, the concept of God leaves no room for the idea that God could become a man, that he became a man any time in the past, that he would ever become a man any time in the present or the future. That is eliminated from the concept of the one God. And this is a particular distinguishing feature which separates Islam in one category into one category and lumps all of the other religions into another category. Those that believe that God now, when we look at this belief, in Hinduism, we see that there is a philosophy behind it. That philosophy holds that there is ultimately no distinction between God and His creation. Every living being, according to Hindu philosophy, has a self or a soul, which they refer to as Atman. And they believe that that self or soul is at the same time Brahman, or the universal one, who at the same time pervades everything, every piece and particle of creation, Brahman is present within. This belief developed into a social order for Hindus, wherein they believe that Brahman created himself in a form which they refer to as Purusa, who is in the form of a human being with a thousand heads and a thousand eyes. And this being, Purusa, is sacrificed to Brahman and he's cut up into pieces. And from his mouth, the head area, came the Brahman class, the upper segment of the society. And from the uh, arms came 
Satrias, Satrias, the noblemen. From the thighs came the Vaishyas, and from the feet came the Shudras. This is the concept of how society then was organized, coming from the belief that God created himself as a man and then sacrificed himself to himself. And from that, human beings were later created. And they had to that a further belief that God became man in a, in a variety of different incarnations, generally held to be ten, in which he appeared as a fish, then he appeared as a tortoise, as a boar, that is a wild pig, as a man lion, as a dwarf, and then he appeared as Rama, who is everybody sort of knows about Rama, and Krishna, and Buddha. And it is held that he will appear in the future as Kalkin, or what is referred to as the Kalki Avatar. Now, this belief is connected with a further belief of Hindus that since the soul is itself God, and human beings when they die, they are on a path back to God to reunite with Brahma, the world soul. When a person dies, he comes back reborn and he dies again and he's reborn and he dies again in the process of being reborn and dying if he started from the shudras then he and he's good then he works his way up until eventually he reaches to the brahmin level where after dying he goes through the process known as moksha or nirvana amongst the buddhists in which he now reunites back with brahma and this idea that human beings really what they need to know what is most important for them in this life is to realize that they are in fact God. Now this is related to some degree to the high rate of suicide among Hindus. People sometimes wonder why do Hindus kill themselves so many? You read so many articles in the newspapers especially in India, or where there are large Hindu communities, that whenever people have a problem, you know, so many people are hanging themselves, killing themselves, this way or another way. When India lost the cricket game a few years back to Sri Lanka, you know, people went out and killed themselves. Well, the concept, of course, that you're coming back again, it means then, if this life is not comfortable, you don't like it, it's uncomfortable, then, then you can always do away with it and come back again. Now, it's also related to the idea why Hindus uh, are vegetarians. 
or, or hold the idea of vegetarianism, though it is not originally a part of Hindu teachings. Because, on one hand, if the person is good and he goes up on the ladder, up in the human caste, up to the Brahman, if he's bad, he goes down, and he could reappear then as a goat, you know, or a pig, or whatever else. So, it's not good to go eat animals, because maybe you're eating your grandfather, or you know, something like this. So this, this thing of vegetarianism became infused in the society. I mean, philosophically, of course, people may be trying to promote it today as being healthy, you know, it's better, human beings really weren't meant to eat animals, etc., etc. But the essence of what is behind it is their belief that human beings can come back as these same animals that we're eating. This is the essence of it. And for Muslims, of course, this is rejected. The idea of coming back is rejected. And God made human beings with an ability to uh, utilize animal flesh to, to digest it gave teeth that could break it down, and enzymes that could break it down in the stomach and the body which could absorb it. So if it wasn't really for us to eat, then why were we created in this way? At any rate, as we said, this belief in Hinduism that God, human beings were created from God, and God becomes a human being, or became a human being, became, became an animal form, etc. And after that time, you have other individuals referring to all to as avatars, you know, God being present in human beings, the most famous of whom is uh, Sai Baba, right? Sai Baba in India, who is worshipped by millions, including some of the leading figures in India, they worship this individual, Sai Baba, as God. This is a belief held by the Hindu world. If we look in the Christian world, we find a similar belief. In the case of Hindus, they held that God manifested himself at least 10 major times and a number of minor times after that. And in the case of Christians, they promoted the idea that God manifested himself one time as Jesus. However, if we were to look at that Christian belief that Jesus was God. God's Son, and at the same time, God. We can find that that belief doesn't have support in the early development of Christianity. It is something which came about some time after Jesus, particularly 
promoted by Paul. He is the main architect of this belief. It is put in the Gospels, specifically in the Gospel of John, where it is stated in the beginning of it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. However, even in the Gospel of John, according to John, these statements are not made by Jesus. These are statements made by the writer of the Gospel. And Christian scholars are unanimous that this Gospel was not written by John, the disciple of Jesus. This was written by somebody who was anonymous. When you actually go back to the early beliefs of Christianity, these beliefs become evident if we research a particular individual. This individual is referred to in early Christian writings as James, the brother of Jesus. In recent times, a number of leading biblical scholars have begun to do serious research into this individual known as James. There are three books, three major works available on the market today, which are worth looking into for those who come from Christian backgrounds. One is called Just James, The Death of a Legend by John Painter. Another is called James, the Brother of Jesus by Robert Eisman. And the third is called James, Brother of Jesus by Pierre-Antoine uh, Bernheim. These are major works. All of them are well over 400 pages of research, academic research into James. They all confirm from the early records that James was the head of the Jerusalem church. He was the first bishop, so to speak. In fact, the author, Robert Eisman, points out that if we were to look at the material which described Jesus and which described James with regards to early writings, there is far more material about James than there is about Jesus. And further research confirms that James headed that church in Jerusalem for the first two decades after the time of Jesus. And these followers, referred to commonly as Jewish Christians, adhere to a set of beliefs which are significantly different from Christian beliefs today. 
The Jewish Christians fear unknown rights. Are those Jews by birth or conversion who observe all or the greater part of the precepts of the Mosaic Law, while believing that Jesus was the Messiah, a prophet like Moses, or another exalted And he goes on to point out that were those early Christians, Jewish Christians, to be told in fact that they were not Jews, they would have been very surprised. Because in terms of the practice, their practice is not Jews. They continue to follow the law of Moses and wash themselves with the prayer.
This idea was already expressed before it became a part of the later Gospels and the writings of later Christians. So, from that we can conclude that the concept of God being a man or becoming a man was alien to Jesus' teachings and to those of the early Christians. However, it became a part as a result of the efforts of Paul and others as Christianity and the teachings went through Greece and into Rome, those teachings became paganized to greater and greater degrees. The day of worship was shifted from the Sabbath to Sunday, the day for the worship of the sun god Apollo in Rome, and so on and so forth. Christianity and its beliefs shifted into the concept, this pagan concept, that God became a man. Now, this concept has also crept into Muslim belief in some segments of Muslim society. Where the philosophical concept that the human soul is divine was accepted in certain circles which came to be known as the mystic circles, the circles of mysticism or Sufism is another name which is used. This idea that God, when He created Adam, He literally breathed a part of Himself into Adam that the human soul was in fact a part of the divine soul, a part of God. This idea, when it spread, it became the basis of the concept that human beings could become God. As God had become a part of human beings, that human beings could become God. It's not exactly the same as what developed in Hinduism and Christianity. But it it's a counterpart, it's a similar to, it has links with the true Islamic concept with regards to the human soul is that the human soul is created. It is not a part of God. Yes, Allah did use the terms that when He created God, He said, But this term that I blew into Adam from my soul, this term has to be looked at within the context of the whole Quran. All of the different references where God refers to a thing as being His. And we find God referring to the angel Gabriel as being Ruhuna, our spirit but we don't understand it to be God. So God uses this term as being His Spirit or a part of His Spirit, not meaning literally that it is a piece and a portion of God, but that this Spirit was a noble Spirit. It is given a special status as God refers to His house, Betulof, or God may refer to His 
camel, Naqatullah, in the case of the camel which was sent to Prophet Salih as a miracle. So, the correct Islamic understanding is that the human soul is not divine. God does not possess a soul. God created the soul by His command. When Prophet was asked about the soul, he was told to say, what? Say that the Ruh, the soul, is from my God's, my Lord's command. And Allah says throughout the Quran, that whenever he wishes something to be, he merely commands it, be, and it is. It comes into existence. It is a part and parcel of God's creation. Now, we could benefit from understanding why is it that Hindus develop this idea that God created the world from Himself, that the human beings are created from different parts of God. And what we can conclude is that this is a result of a misunderstanding of God. It is a result of an inability to conceive of God creating from nothingness. Human beings, when they create, they manipulate. They create from that which already exists. We make this table. It's made from a tree. A tree which was cut down and leveled. Chairs, buildings. We all make things. We create things from things which already exist. So what they did was they used this experience, human experience, that we create things from things which already exist and put this experience onto God. So if God existed and there was nothing else besides Him, when He created, what did He create from? If there was nothing else to create from, He must have created from Himself. So this is where they ended up in this concept of God creating from Himself the creation and God becoming that creation. If we look, on the other hand, at the Christian belief, why they came to the concept that God created, God became man, they developed a series of philosophical uh, explanations based on the concept that when Adam disobeyed God, that the sin which Adam committed was not forgiven by God, but was inherited generation after generation after generation. And that this sin, by the time of Jesus, it had become so great that there was nothing human beings could do to remove this sin from themselves. So, it required that God now make a unique sacrifice. 
which they explained was himself becoming a human being and like the Hindu concept, sacrificing himself to himself. Sacrificing himself to himself. Very similar to the Hindu concept of the origin of the world and human beings, etc. And they also add that God became a man to understand what it is like to be a man. The sufferings of men, the desires that they have and the struggle to overcome it. They also explain that God became a man to, to know what it is like to be a man. Which implies also again that God is like human beings. We cannot know what it is like to be somebody else unless you are that somebody else. This is human. This is human. These are human qualities. Whereas God, who created all things, knows how they work, doesn't have to be a man to know what it is like to be a man. But they have projected this concept of God, or projected the concept of human beings, the weaknesses of human beings, onto God. Now, having looked at the situation amongst the major faiths of Hinduism and Christianity with regards to God becoming man, the question still remains, okay, Muslims hold that this is wrong. God did not become a man. He never became a man, nor will he ever become a man. Why not? This question remains, why not? People will ask, isn't God able to do all things? Isn't God able to do all things? And Muslims will have to respond by saying, Yes. Allah says in the Quran, Allah Many times, not one time, twice, three times, many times in the Quran, Allah says, Indeed, Allah is able to do all things. So, the Christian or the Hindu would then ask, then why could God become a man? If he's able to do all things, then why could he become a man? It's the valid question. On one level, but actually it is an invalid question when one looks at the essence of the question. Because we have to go back to the concept of God itself. Who is God? God, it is generally accepted in the most primitive of societies. God has no beginning or end. It's a being who has no beginning and has no end. Now, if that is accepted, God has no beginning and no end. Is it then reasonable to then ask 
Since God can do all things, can God die? No. This is ludicrous. This is ridiculous. This is a nonsensical question. Because if we already said that God has no end, that is one of the attributes of God, not having an end, to ask then, can God die? No. Because if God died, then he would no longer be God. We already said God is the one who has no end. Similarly to ask, can God be born? We have to say no. Even the Christian will say no. Because God is one who has no beginning. This is something which the human mind can readily grasp. Now, atheist philosophers used to like to play with Christian philosophers, throwing out to them this proposal. Can God create a stone which is too heavy for him to lift? Can God create a stone which is too heavy for him to lift? Why would they throw this at the Christian? Because Christians say God can do anything. Okay? If your God can do anything, can he make a stone which is too heavy for him to lift? This was a problem. This became a problem. Because in their concept, God can do anything means literally anything. But a thinking, rational, reasonable understanding says no. No. If God is the greatest, this is one of his attributes, there's nothing greater than he, Allahu Akbar, then that means that for him to create something greater than himself means he's no longer God. No. So what we're saying here is that when we speak of God being able to do all things, this does not include all the absurdities, things which would make God no longer God. Because God is God. So not included in God being able to do all things are the things which would make God no longer God. A God that dies. A God that is born. A God that creates things greater than himself. No. Those are absurdities. Now the concept of God becoming a man is also an absurdity included in that same category of absurdities. Because man is creation. God is the creator. If the creator becomes his creation, then he is in need of a creator. He is no longer the creator. Once he becomes his creation, then he becomes in need of a creator. So it is a contradiction in terms. The creator cannot become his creation. 
just as the creation cannot become the creator. So the idea that God became a man is an absurdity. It contradicts the concept, the fundamental concept of God being the creator. The uncreated creator. The true creator. That idea would be contradicted by accepting that God became a man. So, as I said at the very beginning, this is a critical issue. A fundamental issue which distinguishes between true religion and false religion. True religion holds that God did not become a man. And the false religions that we have around us in the world today are unanimous in promoting the idea that God became a man. Either one time or many times. This is a very important point for Muslims to use as a basis of explaining the fundamental beliefs of Islam, the oneness of God. The oneness in the sense that God is not merely one among gods. Because when you say God is one, I mean as I say for example, this pen is one pen. But you could have a pen, there may be many other pens around. Our concept, Islamic concept, is not that God is one in this sense, but that God is one in the unique sense, as he said, that there is nothing like him. His oneness is a unique oneness. A oneness which is not like the one thing, single unitary things of this world, which are divisible into parts and pieces. Like the Christian egg theory for explaining how God is three in one. Where Christians will say, well, you know the egg, it has a shell, it has the white, it has the yolk. All of that together makes the egg. That's how God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But we say, no, that's an egg. Maybe your God is an egg, but our God is the true God. He's not divisible into parts. He is unique in his oneness. I hope that the point of the uniqueness of Islam's, Islam's belief in the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God, and that he is the creator, that he does not become his creation, is 
now clear to you, and I hope that you would convey this concept, those of you that are Muslims in the audience, that you would convey this concept to others. If you are holding a confused concept yourself, that the human soul is divine, and that human beings sometimes can become God, that you would clear up this concept for yourself. Remove it, because it is false. It has many, many problems with it. If you believe that your soul is divine, and you go to hell, what are you going to say about that? That a part of God is punished in hell? Problems. Even logic tells me, hey, this kind of belief has got problems with it. There's something wrong here. No, the human soul is created.
I have a question regarding uh, or it's a comment. In about four to six weeks from now, the Christian world will celebrate the Christmas time. And a lot of Muslims, they share this kind of rituals of the Christmas. And still they think that we have still the good thought and we don't believe that God is a man. Uh, it would be very nice if you would make any comment on this kind of point since Muslims in a growing number in different parts of the Islamic world are celebrating this kind of uh, festivity. Wassalam. Actually, this question is not really related to, directly related to our topic. Um, I would like to have taken it towards the end and focused on ones which were more directly related to our topic, especially if we had, um, you know, from our uh, non-Muslim guests who are here in the audience, you know, we'd like to hear from them, give them priority, give them the opportunity to raise any questions that they would like to make. It's a tendency in our gatherings and Muslims tend to dominate the questions and uh, our guests hardly get an opportunity to raise any questions at all. Um, so if we have uh, a non-Muslim in the audience who would like to raise a question, uh, then I'd like to give priority to our guests, non-Muslim guests who are in the audience. Do we have any who would like to raise a question? Okay, uh, is there a question more directly related to the topic? More directly related to the topic? Uh, I have two questions. Uh, first, I want to thank you for the nice lecture. And uh, my first question is, can we as Muslims uh, call Allah God as we always do in our talk? We know that Allah gave us His names in Quran, but not one of them is God. Can we translate his name? Yani we know that uh, Christians, they translated the name of God to God, but can we still, we write some cards, we say thank God and these things. We should say Allah, or can we just say God? As we do, the lectures. So, okay. it's English. Okay, this is, uh, this is an issue which pops up from time to time, which I find is really a very, you know, semantic, uh, hair-splitting, you know, issue, really. Because Allah refers to Himself as Ilahubu. What does Ilah mean? It means God. You're God. One of His names is Al-Ilah, which means the God. So, for us to use God, and of course when we use God, we mean the capital G, which means the God, it's not a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. In fact, some people have even gone to the extreme of claiming that Allah's name, you know, Allah, is the name which was used by all of the prophets of God. But this is a very, very far out claim, really. If we consider that the prophets came to, you know, all nations and tribes as, as uh, as Allah said in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ بَعْمْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا And يَعْبُدُ اللَّهُ وَجْلَهُمْ تَعْبُودٍ Sent to every nation and tribe a messenger, you know, calling the people to worship Allah and avoid false gods. 
And then Allah says He only sent messengers speaking the language of the people, and then He is going, they're going to be using languages other than the language of the people. No, this is nonsensical. The point is that whether we call Allah in the sense of the title of God, not necessarily mean the name of God, the title of God, you know, in, in English, God, or Dios in Spanish, or Hanan in, in, in Korean, or you know, whatever, this is not an issue. As long as we're referring to the creator of the universe, you know, uh, who is not a part and parcel of his, his creation, etc., etc., as long as that is our understanding, then to use other terms should not be a problem for us. The, the name given to God in Arabic, Allah, this is a unique name, no doubt. But Allah also refers to Himself as Ilah, Al Ilah, Ilahuku, etc. Yeah, the second question is uh, uh, I agree with the, the concept that our soul is not divine, but, but do you have the need of that so that when we like discuss with the Sufians or people, Sufis, uh, what is the need from? Well, other than logic, yes. I mean, this topic actually I have explained it at length in a book which I wrote called The Fundamentals of Tawheed, which is available with the Ibn Center, and it's a topic of a lecture in itself. You know, to try to to deal with it completely, but it is enough to say that when Allah refers to things, He refers to some things as literally from Himself, His mercy, right? His love, this is Allah. But when He, refer, he also refers to aspects of His creation as also being His. So we know that these two relationships exist. And even in our language, we, we talk about my hand, for example, we talk about my book. But is my book the same as my hand? Though we use the same terminology. My hand is a part of me, my book is not. It's something which I possess. Right? So when we look at that in the context, you know, of the explanations given by Prophet Sallallahu about the angel coming and blowing the spirit into the the uh, child, you know, when it reaches a certain stage of development. You know, we can understand that though the spirit that the angel is using is doing this, Allah refers to it as him doing it, as he refers to him doing things which human beings do in other contexts. You know, as he said, The Prophet ﷺ threw dust at his enemies and it reached all the way across the valley to reach their, their faces, you know, many, many hundreds of yards away. That throwing that the Prophet did, Allah referred to it as His throwing. So, you know, when we put all of that together, this is where we end up. A written question, there is often a fluctuation between the person used by the Holy Quran. Sometimes God speaks to mankind as we, but then He turns to the third person as your God. Could you explain this? First let me say, before explaining this, the term, the Holy Quran, is improper. Improper. 
The Holy Bible? Yes. Christians refer to their book as the Holy Bible. Under influence, the influence of Christian uh, culture, Western culture, we have ended up now saying the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophets. No, but do we find this in the statements of the Prophet in the Quran, of the Sahaba, etc.? No. It is a Christian concept. There is no Holy Quran. There is Al Quran Al Adim, the magnificent Quran, Al Quran Al Kareem, the noble Quran. We have all of that. But the Holy Quran, Al Muqaddas, no. We don't have it. So it is something which Muslims have innovated, which we need to correct as soon as possible. I mean, it's not a major, it doesn't mean the person becomes a mushrik, you know, you know, worshipping other than God because he said this, but we should know that it is incorrect terminology. You know, when, when we use a certain terminology like issues of God and not, this is another area. But the area of holy, we don't have any precedence for that. As the brother asked, where's the evidence? I said, okay, Allah says, Ilahukum. And he referred to us as Ilah, so we have evidence. But for holy Quran, holy prophet, we have no evidence. So, we should refrain from using that terminology. Now, the shift which we find in the Qur'an, wherein Allah refers to Himself in singular terms and in plural terms, this is only a, an aspect of the Arabic language. That the use of the plural, which is commonly referred to as the majestic we, it exists even in English. When uh, Queen Elizabeth, she announces to her subjects that she's going to travel to America or wherever, she says, we will travel this world. It's known. Using the plural to indicate special position, honor, etc. This is common in Arabic. We greet each other, salam alaykum. you all. But there's only one. Technically speaking, we should say Salam Alayka if you're masculine. Or Salam Alayki if you're feminine. But we say Salam Alaykum. So this use of plural exists not only in uh, Arabic, it exists in the Semitic languages. This is why you'll also find in the Bible of God referring to himself what is authentic, maybe considered authentic of it, you know, in plural forms. Further question? Brother Abraham, you might ask one question, please. Uh, what about the Judaism and the Jews? So, Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Is there anything pertaining that God becoming Quran in Judaism and in the Jews' beliefs? Thank you. Okay, our brother's question, for those of you who couldn't make it out a little bit, the sound of the microphone not that strong. Um, is there anything from Jewish beliefs that indicate they hold that God became a man? Well, we can find a text which has to do with Prophet Jacob that 
he wrestled with an individual. And as they describe this process of wrestling, etc., it implies that God, uh, Jacob is actually wrestling with God. And they say the name Israel means the one who wrestled with God. So there are implications of it there. Though the Jews don't make it a basic part of their belief system, they don't make it a basic part of the belief system, they do have that within the text of their uh, scripture. Uh, furthermore, you can also find many references where God is portrayed in human terms. For example, when Adam ate from the tree, Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they realized they had done wrong, and they went and they hid. It is described in Genesis that Adam could hear God's footsteps in the garden. And God called out, Adam, where are you? And find out where Adam is, Adam is hiding behind the tree. He's portraying God in these kind of, you know, human kind of terms. Unable to know, uh, walking in the garden, you can hear his footsteps. Uh, God is also described as uh, feeling sorry about what he thought to do to the Jews. You know, repenting, all of these terminologies are used with regard to God in the, uh, the Old Testament, and specifically the area which is referred to as the Torah, you can find a number of references like that. In the Talmud, which is the tafsir, the Jewish tafsir of the Torah, they have many references where they speak about God, you know, having conferences with the rabbis, you know, before he does something on the earth. He has a conference with the rabbi and gives the permission and then he goes ahead and does certain things. Again, you know, lowering God to this point of you know, almost being the personal servant of the Jewish people. When they need something, he's there. He's their personal God, the Lord God of Israel. He became sort of like a personalized God of theirs. Like somebody has a, a genie, you know, you rub the lamp and the genie pops up. You have three wishes, you tell him to do this or do that. You know, that is sort of God to them. That, that the God is committed to them to do whatever they need, whatever Israel needs, etc., etc. A written question. I want to know the answer regarding the question in your lecture. Can God create a stone which he cannot carry? No. No, because he said that contradicts God being God. That is a ludicrous question which we don't really entertain because the concept involves canceling or negating the divinity of God's quality of being God. Could the Muslim women begin Islamic greetings to a man that is not from her baharim? Meaning, can a Muslim woman say salam alaikum to any man? Yes. Islam does not forbid it. Muslim cultures may have forbidden it. But of course, if it is done, it should be done in a business-like fashion. You know, because it's something very dangerous we have to be very conscious of. Because if there's somebody that they like, then they will say, Salaam Alaikum. <laughs> if, it's, if it's somebody that they know that they don't put it, Salaam Alaikum. Hey, this is the one that you have to use, right? 
If you're going to say Asalaamu Alaikum, then you must use the one which isn't got, you know, the softness of the voice, which obviously, you know, so the point is that it should be in this life. Okay, we'll take this as the last question. Um, yeah, okay, I think I better, unless this top question, I'll see the people have gone off our topic somewhat, right? You know, asking about greeting, etc. You got a question which is right on the topic? Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. I mean, my question is about intercession. Intercession. Uh, unfortunately, I found many uh, Muslims uh, misguided to think that they can uh, make it to us of intercession by uh, often Sufi uh, people who have died in their graves. They may go there, whereas uh, they tell me that they will say something like, by the love of Allah, by the love of have for this uh, shape, so and so, please give me a child. Or, Give me money or give me a soldier or give me somebody or something like this. And what I wanted to ask is uh, what kind of dawah, what kind of information should a Muslim try to bring uh, to these uh, misled Muslims that this is uh, forbidden by the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of Allah? Again, this topic, the concept of intercession, it's a, it's a big topic. Um, the book which I did, again, The Fundamentals of Tawheed, has a whole section dealing with it. Uh, it is worth reading, those of you who want to go into more detail. But we have to look at what is the essence, what is the idea behind this. When a person does this, that he calls upon God through others, it comes from the idea common in our world, that if you want to get something done, you must use some kind of intermediary. You want to see the president of the country, you can't just go to his office, knock on his door and say, hey, listen, I'd like to have a conversation with you. You have to find somebody who knows somebody, who knows somebody, who knows somebody, you know, and in this way your requests or your desires can be fulfilled. So people will present this, you know, as, as a rationale for explaining why you need to go through somebody. Because you yourself, you try to approach God, who are you? You are nobody. Committing so many sins, etc. Now you want to get to God, you need to get this through somebody who's close to God. Somebody who will call a wali, for example, a saint. He was close to God. Therefore, if you want to get to God, the best thing is to use His uh, position relative to God to get your prayers answered. But Prophet Muhammad he told his own daughter Fatima, Oh Fatima, work, do whatever you can for yourself because I can do nothing for you in the near future. There's nothing I can do. Prophet Muhammad was not able to help uh, Abu Talib out of the hellfire, his uncle who raised him, took care of him, everything else, and he couldn't help him. So, it is delusion on our part to think that we can call on others or utilize 
the closeness of others to Allah to benefit ourselves. Allah deals with us directly. He's not like the kings and the presidents and the directors and the managers of this world. Allah says, Call on me and I will answer your prayers. He didn't say call on somebody close to me. He said call on me. My question is uh, basically the creation of uh, man and the relation between God and man. And uh, I, I can't quote that it was actually yours. I read some of your books about how Prophet Muhammad descended to the heavens. Uh, but, and also the creation of man, how man was created. Uh, I believe there's like the tops here given about the creation of Adam. And uh, it was kind of something like uh, that. He was his, his uh, the clay that was brought to create him was coming from all parts of the earth in different colors. Mm -hmm. I would kind of like for you to clarify exactly, you know, what is the understanding for us as human beings, Muslims? Because for me, it seems as if it's giving me an idea, you know, a visual idea on how man was created and how the angels passed by him, and then they asked. Uh, a lot of things when you create something. So how it coincides with what the Quran is saying, but it's sort of unclear and it kind of leaves me uh, with a like a look like Christians, they look at the, the picture of Jesus and say, this is Jesus, you know? So the thing is, I want to know, what is there a top here out there? And do you have any kind of clarity about that? Well, the concept of man's creation, the details of how it took place, this has not been given to us. There are stories, you know, many of which are not authentic, they're describing the process, but really, we don't have anything authentic clarifying the details. What we do know, as you did mention, is that Adam was created from Earth from all over the planet. And this was informing us that the variety which exists amongst us today existed with Adam at the time of creation, the clarification class. Where did all this variety of people come from? It came from Adam. He had these qualities in himself. It was in his genes. All of us and all of our forms, etc., existed with him. But um, the, the concept of God's creation of Adam shouldn't be one in which we think of God actually molding Adam in, in, as a human being would mold a, you know, a, an image out of clay or whatever. It's not that process that Allah, though He describes the making of Adam, again, you know, with the agent, agency of the angels, etc., he, he refers to it as being his making. You know, as the blowing is his blowing, the making is his making. And the details of it, as I said, we don't need to get into it. Allah didn't go into the details for us because it is really not relevant. It really is of no relevance. We know Allah is nothing is like him. He said he created Adam this way, that way, whatever, and we just go with that. We, just, we don't get into the anthropomorphic types of understandings, you know, where we start to conceive of God, you know, in human terms. Follow up? A different question or...? 
Okay, follow down. Um, just remembering, uh, it, was, it was something like uh, someone was told, I'm not sure, but when Adam, when, he, when the roof, yeah, he went into his soul and it got, I believe, down to his nose, he sneezed. He sneezed. Yeah, this is a part of the story. But this is not the authentic. No, you see, before, the first thing you need to do, before you... Because this is, I'm yeah. sorry, because this is coming from a Muslim, so it needs to be clear for the Muslims to, to be aware of these things, you know, because the people are coming with all this information. And for me, I, I couldn't accept it, you know, you know what I mean? I just feel that Allah said, be it it is. These things, these ideologies, it's kind of convinced of a Muslim that he's not based thoroughly. Yeah, well, the, the point is that whenever we get into these kind of areas, it's very important that we ensure that the information that we have is authentic. That's the beginning point, right? Then after we've confirmed its authenticity, then we have to look at it in the light of whatever else we know about Islam. Because anytime you take a text, either a statement of the Prophet or a statement from the Quran, and you take it out of the context of the whole Sunnah and of the whole Quran, then you can change meanings. You can create understandings which are contrary to the understanding that was intended. Uh, as your brother Bilal said, the Holy Quran is incorrect. So explain me to me how God can be correct whose origins from Christianity and his chances of wording God's plural, God is female, where Allah has no tampering chances. Well, again, I thought I'd touch that, but I'd leave it. You know, the point here, Holy Quran, as I said, has no basis in the Quran or in the Sunnah of the Prophet or his companion statements. It has no basis. Whereas God has a basis in the Quran and in the Sunnah. The term God is used. It may not be God, English God, but it is God, Arabic God. Ilah, Al-Ilah. These terms are used in reference to God. So it has a basis in the Quran, it has a basis in the Sunnah, so it is legitimate to use it. And just as Ilah, has a feminine version, Ilaha, Goddess, Aliha, also Gods, Alihat, Goddesses, it all exists in Arabic also. Yet God still uses the term Ilah in reference to Himself. Okay, these are our last two questions, and the question of the brother concerning Christmas. We'll try to deal with these are the last questions actually. This is the uh, statement of our chairman here. Um, why did Christians corrupt the correct understanding of God as taught to them by Jesus? This is the work of Satan. This is the work of Satan. Christians, the true followers of Jesus, they did not corrupt the teachings of Jesus. They continued those teachings. As I mentioned, James was referred to as the brother of Jesus. Uh, what the brother of Jesus here means 
Even Christian scholars are not certain. Some say it means his cousin. Some say it uh, is, in, is in reference to um, closeness to him. In a variety of different explanations they've given for it. Uh, and for our purposes, we don't need to get into it. We're not going to argue that he was in fact actually the brother of Jesus or not. But that term is referred, is referred to by that term. And he was a big figure in early Christianity. A figure who has been deleted from modern Christianity. Vast majority of Christians, if you ask them, do you know about James, the brother of Jesus? What? Jesus had a brother? Yeah. Hey, you know, you go to Acts verse this, you go to, it's there mentioned, it's actually mentioned in the gospel. When people read it, they don't even, doesn't catch their mind to stop and think, hey, what does this mean? Let us find out. So, he has been written out of um, the texts which are used in modern Christianity, but he exists as a prominent figure, the leader of Christianity in the first three decades after the time of Jesus. So the corrupt understanding was not taught by early Christians, but by Paul, a convert, supposed convert from Judaism, uh, who promoted the paganization of Jesus, concept of Jesus, concept of God, having a son, becoming a man, etc., etc. And the Greek and Roman Christians, they put backing behind it, and it eventually became, by the 4th century, the dominant belief amongst Christians. Persons asked, when did this corruption creep in? How did the process of corruption proceed? Um, in my book called The True Message of Jesus Christ, I do outline in there the stages by which the uh, Trinitarian concept, the concept of Jesus was God, uh, took a hold. And I also identify in there the monotheists, those who held and stuck firmly to the monotheistic beliefs how they continued to hold it for a number of centuries. You know, uh, the fourth century, when the uh, decision was made in the Council of Nicaea to confirm that Jesus was God, three gods in one, etc., etc., the bishop or the presbyter of Alexandria, Arius, he was the one who, one of the dissenters, who refused to sign the document. And as a result, he was excommunicated branded a heretic, and his followers were hunted down. And you know what happened, etc. after that, uh, is explained there. Also there's a book called Jesus, the Prophet of Islam, in which uh, Atar Rahman, he traces the evolution of monotheism amongst Christians, you know, from the past until present day. What do you think the root cause of weakness in the Islamic world as a whole? As we can see very obviously in the same, in some countries the Muslims are being oppressed with regards to Islam, and Islamic countries remain silent. Well, this is not really related to our topic. Um, this concept will be dealt with in the lecture which I should do tomorrow evening on the clash of civilizations. I will now just deal with our questions which our brother asked, the very first question. Um, 
I know his intention was to try to catch some of the people before they left. Sorry about that. You know, some of those who may have uh, this idea that there's nothing wrong in, in taking part in Christmas celebrations, you know, either directly or indirectly. We don't necessarily believe what they believe. We're just being cordial. You know, as they wish us Happy Eid, we say to them Happy Christmas. You know, what's the harm? We don't believe, they don't believe. We're just being cordial. Well, the point is that it is not permitted for a Muslim to greet a Christian Happy Christmas or Merry Christmas. It is not permitted. It is haram. The greeting Merry Christmas is taking part in the celebration of the birth of God. The idea which is completely against Islamic teachings, fundamentally against Islamic teachings. To express it even in cordiality or you know trying to be friendly or whatever, this is not acceptable. It is the duty of Muslims if they are wished. Uh, whatever, Merry Christmas, then it is the duty of Muslims to clarify to the non-Muslims that this is not really appropriate. Jesus, even the date of Jesus' birth, is not This was something developed many, many years after the time of Jesus. The early 300 years after Jesus' time, they never celebrated anybody's birthday because it was known that birthday celebrations was pagan. This is why in the Bible, the only people you hear celebrating birthday was Pharaoh, the pagan ruler of Egypt, and Herod, the pagan ruler of Palestine. These are the only people celebrating birthdays, pagan rulers. It was not in Jewish tradition to celebrate birthdays at all, known to be pagan. So early Christians forbade it. Actually, there are many struggles amongst Christians in the 13th, 15th, 18th century, where they struggle amongst each other, some who are opposed to the celebration of of uh, Christmas, the early Puritans, you know, went to America. They were opposed to it. They didn't celebrate Christmas in America for hundreds of years. It's not until the Germans came, the the Germans, Germans were into celebrating Christmas. They brought it later, and it became popular, and they started celebrating it. But the early uh, Christians that went to America did not celebrate Christmas. It was considered heretical. So. Even from a Christian point of view, it's not acceptable. But if we go and want to try to explain to a Christian who feels, you know, what's the harm? We have to explain to them. When a Christian says to us, Happy Eid, Eid al-Fitr or Eid al-Adha, we have to ask them, do you really not believe in this Eid? Do you really not sharing us the concepts of Eid. Eid al-Adha, what is it about? It is celebrating Prophet Abraham's preparedness to sacrifice his son. You believe that? So you're saying Happy Eid to us is, is joining us with something you believe in. When you say Happy Eid for Eid al-Fitr, the idea that after fasting, giving, sharing food with others, do you not believe in the concept of fasting? Didn't Moses and Jesus both fast for 40 days and nights without eating anything? You believe in that. It's a part of your belief. So saying to us, happy Eid, you're sharing in things that we believe in. Whereas, 
If a Satan worshiper, you Christian, my friend Christian, if a Satan worshiper came to you and said to you, Happy Satan's Day, would you reply to them, Happy Satan's Day to you? No, you wouldn't. Why not? It's just cordial. Oh no, because the idea of Satan's Day is evil. This is evil. The point is for us as Muslims, if we don't believe that God was born on the 25th of December, then where did that idea come from? If Jesus never taught it, His disciples never taught it, then where do you think the idea that God was born on the 25th of December came from? Satan. Christmas, in reality, is Satan's day. It is Satan's day. It is a satanic idea. It is an idea of misguidance. It is the basis of people who believe that God became a man and was born. It is satanic. This is not divine. God never revealed it. God never taught it. It is Satan who taught it. Through human beings, that idea spread and has become commonplace today. Thank you. I'm sorry about your question, but I'd like to ask it. I've already been asked to stop at this point. Perhaps you can catch me as I'm leaving. If you have the question, I can try to answer it for you. Or raise it in the lecture tomorrow. If you can come. Assalamu alaikum, dear brothers and sisters. Tomorrow we have lecture in Shah, Saudi Islamic Business Center. And the title is Clash of Civilization. Thank <laughs> you.